0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers. It's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Recently, I've been having fun collaborating with a lot of other podcasts, and I want to take a minute to tell you about them. I recently guest-hosted the Krista Helm episode of Parcast Network's podcast called Today in True Crime. That episode dropped on February 12th. I was also featured on an episode of a podcast called What Was That Like? in the episode titled Jamie Found a Stranger in Her Bedroom. In addition, I was interviewed on Pain in the Pod, that's P-A-Y-N-E in the Pod, in an episode titled Deep Dives into True Crime Cases. Last but definitely not least, my six-year-old daughter got to participate on Varmint's podcast in their episode about sea lions. I love all of these podcasts and I was so excited to be featured on them. Check them out if you get a chance. And don't forget, if you're planning to attend CrimeCon this year, use promo code MADNESS2020 for 10% off of a standard badge. That's MADNESS2020. I hope to see you there. Jenna Say, I want to thank you for becoming a Patreon supporter. You rock and I appreciate you so much. Lastly, but most importantly, I have to warn you that this episode contains very disturbing discussions regarding child sexual abuse, torture, and the murder of children. I found this case to be more emotional than others due to the extremely heinous nature of the crimes that were committed. Given the way this case made me feel, I need to caution you to use discretion before listening. Playing in a Beaumont alley, were approached by a stranger who offered each one of them a dollar if they could help him find his lost cat. According to an eyewitness, the man then took out a knife and forced Martinez into the back of his car and drove off. Immediately, police came out in droves, putting up signs, holding candlelight vigils. Martinez's mother, front and center, pleading for the return of her son. I appreciate everything that you're doing, and um, we're all going to have a good time when Tony comes home. In April of 1997, a man noticed a flock of vultures in a remote area near Indio, California. Upon getting a closer look, the man realized that he had come upon the remains of a young boy. This discovery would spark a large-scale investigation and hunt for the boy's killer. Law enforcement could have never been prepared for what would be found during a years long investigation that uncovered multiple victims in different states. When the killer finally faced justice, the highly disturbing details of his crimes would cause chaos in a California courtroom. Join me as I walk you through the tragic abduction and murder of Anthony Tony Martinez. Takes us to the city of Beaumont. Located in Southern California, about 80 miles east of Los Angeles, Beaumont is a fairly small town. Beaumont, which is French for Beautiful Mountain, is safer than 26% of U.S. cities according to its 2017 Crime Index. From 2005 to 2018, a total of nine murders occurred in Beaumont, which is an average of less than one murder per year. The town isn't particularly notable, however. Beaumont made news headlines in 2016 as seven government officials were charged for stealing over $40 million from the city. Almost two decades earlier than the government theft scandal, Beaumont made headlines for something far worse. On April 19th of 1997, Richard Smith, A ranger with the Bureau of Land Management was in an area near Indio, California, just off Interstate 10. The area where Smith was was known as Burdew Canyon, which is located about an hour and a half drive away from Beaumont. While there, Smith noticed a flock of vultures who were circling around a particular area. Curious, Smith went over to the area to have a look around. When Smith arrived at the location where the vultures were circling, he noticed some small rocks. As he looked closer, he could see that the rocks were covering the body of a young boy who was nude. He could see that the boy's wrists and ankles were bound with duct tape, and he was lying in a fetal position. Due to heat exposure and outdoor elements, the body was not immediately identifiable, It would be two more days until the deceased boy would be identified through dental records. On Saturday, April 21st, the young boy was confirmed to be 10-year-old Anthony Martinez, who had gone missing from his Beaumont home two weeks before his body was found off of Interstate 10. On the afternoon of April 4th, 1997, Anthony Martinez, who went by Tony, was playing outside of his home with his younger brother Marcos, who goes by Mark and some other friends. While the kids were playing, a man approached them in a white vehicle and told them he needed help finding his cat. The man showed the kids a picture of a long-haired white cat and he said he'd give them each a dollar if they helped him. The boys were willing to help the man find his cat, but one of Tony's friends, a girl, had a bad feeling about the strange man. At one point, the man bent over and said he had a secret to tell the kids. During this time, according to Tony's brother, Mark, the man grabbed him by his leg, causing his shoe to fall off. Mark said that Tony immediately sprung into action and tried to protect him from the man. Ten-year-old Tony forced his way in between the man and his brother, at which time the man pulled out a knife, put Tony into a headlock, and forced him into his vehicle. Mark and the other kids could hear Tony screaming for help from inside the man's car. Mark ran inside his house and told his parents what had just happened. And the search was immediately on to find 10-year-old Tony Martinez. The news about Tony's kidnapping traveled fast in the small town, and soon... Thousands of people were looking for him. Nearby Native American tribe, the Morongos, bought an ad in the USA Today newspaper that featured a picture of Tony. The newspaper article also had a sketch of the suspect, which was based on a description provided by Tony's brother, Mark, and the other kids who were playing with Tony the day he was abducted. The kids described Tony's abductor as being a thinly-built white man who was about 5 feet 8 inches tall, with blue eyes, and appeared to be about 25 to 35 years old. The kids said the man had a mustache and he was wearing a plaid shirt and blue jeans. After the abduction, residents of Beaumont became paranoid that any stranger that they came across might be the man who took Tony. Behaviors quickly changed in the town after his abduction. Kids were no longer allowed to go anywhere alone. Parents went into overdrive to protect and watch over their children. In a show of support for their classmate, students at Tony's school attached notes to over 1,000 balloons and released them into the air in hopes of others finding the notes and reading about Tony. Prayer vigils were held for Tony in Beaumont, and on one night, 3,000 people held hands in a circle around the city that stretched over 8 miles long. A resolution was passed by the Beaumont City Council asking residents to leave their porch lights on every night for Tony as a symbol to help light his way home, according to a Press Enterprise article by Lisa O'Neill Hill, Michael Fisher, Steve Moore, Phil Pitchford, David Herman, Gregor McGavin, and Jackie Chamberlain. According to an article in the Press Enterprise, written by Ali Tadayan, Gail Wesson, and Jan Leha, the mayor of Beaumont in 1997 said regarding the outpouring of support, it showed how a community would come together. We knew it was a race at the clock to do everything we could to bring Anthony home. Upon receiving a report that Tony Martinez had been abducted, the Beaumont Police Department immediately began a search for the young boy knowing how crucial it was to find him in the first few hours. The more time that went by, police officers knew the circle for where he might be would grow larger, making it even more difficult to find him. The FBI was quickly contacted regarding Tony's abduction, and the Beaumont Police Chief Lieutenant Mitch White also let other nearby agencies know about the abduction. At its peak, there were over 200 officers from various law enforcement agencies searching for Tony. Search and rescue dogs were brought in to try to locate the missing boy. Tragically, his remains were found two weeks after he was abducted. An autopsy was performed on Tony's body, but determining how long he had been dead proved impossible due to his body being subjected to heat for an extended period of time the coroner was only able to make a best guess, reporting that Tony had been dead for anywhere from two days to two weeks, and that the cause of death was blunt force trauma. The coroner also determined that Tony had been sexually assaulted. With a very dangerous man possibly still residing in the area, everyone was nervous for their children's safety. Police Chief Mitch White told his wife to keep a very close eye on their children during this time, because for all he knew, the person who had abducted Tony could be his neighbor. White and his staff were working very long hours during the time they were searching for Tony, often working 20 hours in a day. During the first week after the abduction, 900 tips came in regarding possible suspects. Police quickly caught a break in the case when a partial thumbprint was pulled from the duct tape which was used to bind Tony's hands and feet. Police used the partial thumbprint to eliminate people, but still, they had over 100 suspects. Sadly, the investigation would soon turn from an abduction to a murder investigation. Beaumont Police Lieutenant John Acosta was brought in to help Police Chief White lead the murder investigation. Despite their hard work, the efforts to find Tony's murderer stalled. And four years later, the case remained unsolved. I have tried so many different fitness routines in my life and found that I always do best if I'm working with a trainer. But shelling out money every month for an expensive trainer can be a struggle. I recently started training with Future and I am hooked. Here's why. Future teamed me up with a world-class personal trainer named Caroline. And working with her has kept me on track with my fitness goals. Caroline can track my progress on my Apple Watch. And get this. If you don't have an Apple Watch, Future will send you a free Apple Watch to use after you sign up. How cool is that? Caroline checks in on me regularly through text messages and she sends adjustments to my fitness routine as needed. My Future trainer answers all of my workout and nutrition questions. And it's so great to have a personal trainer that custom tailors a fitness plan to fit my specific needs and I can take her wherever I go. Trainers are great, but you don't have to spend an arm and a leg to work with one. Sign up for Future today at tryfuture.com murderish and get your first two weeks with your personal trainer for $1. That's tryfuture.com murderish for two weeks for only $1. tryfuture.com murderish. Even if you already have auto insurance, car repairs can be so expensive. I recently discovered Endurance, which offers total vehicle protection and it can save you a lot of money. Like most people, I've needed auto repairs numerous times and I always feel the same stress over the out-of-pocket costs. With Endurance, an auto advocate will negotiate repair prices on your behalf Ensuring that you get the best price available. Rated number one vehicle protection plan by Consumer Affairs, Endurance protects you from the high costs of auto repairs. For a limited time, Endurance is offering their elite membership with every plan, which means you will get 24 7 roadside assistance, a personal concierge, key fob replacement, and tire repair. My son's car broke down a while back. and his out-of-pocket repair costs were through the roof. He could have really benefited from an Endurance coverage plan at the time, which would have saved him quite a bit of money. For more information about Endurance's vehicle protection plans, visit EnduranceNow.com Murderish. That's EnduranceNow.com Murderish. Born in Riverside County, California on December 9th of 1986, Anthony Michael Martinez was welcomed into the world by his parents, Ernesto and Diana Martinez. Anthony, who went by Tony, was the oldest of three children. Tony loved collecting baseball cards and reading mystery books, and he was a huge fan of NFL football team the Dallas Cowboys. At the time of his abduction, 10-year-old Tony was living in Beaumont with his parents and younger siblings, Marcos, who went by Mark, and sister Monica. Mark was six years old at the time and Monica was only three. Whether anyone knew it at the time, Tony was a very brave boy. The day he was abducted in broad daylight, he saved his little brother Mark from being taken by the strange man, as Mark was the intended target. In 2004, the murder investigation team working on Tony's case would get a welcomed helping hand from a TV series dedicated to solving major crime cases. Four years after Tony was found murdered, his case was featured on the TV series America's Most Wanted. Host John Walsh, whose son Adam Walsh was abducted and murdered in 1981, spoke about Tony's case on the show, and pleaded with the public to come forward if they had any information that might be helpful. Although this was very welcomed publicity for Tony's case it remained unsolved for a few more years after the episode of America's Most Wanted aired the following year on May 16th of 2005 authorities discovered three dead bodies inside of a home in Lake Coeur d'Alene, Idaho a small area just outside of Coeur d'Alene. the bodies were quickly identified as 37-year-old Mark McKenzie Mark's fiancee, 40 year old Brenda Grohn, and Brenda's 13 year old son, Slade Groen. All three victims died by blunt force trauma. What police did not find in the house made matters even worse. Brenda's two youngest children, Dylan, age nine, and Shasta, age eight, were nowhere to be found. Two months after the bodies were discovered in Idaho on July 2, 2005, a man and a young girl walked into a Denny's restaurant in Coeur Idaho. Two people who were outside of the restaurant smoking cigarettes believed they had seen the man who had just come in with the young girl. They recognized him from a news segment on TV. Inside the restaurant, the waitress who was serving the man and the young girl also recognized him as being the same person she saw on the news. Police were called and they arrived at the Denny's restaurant within minutes. Upon seeing the man and the little girl, they knew this was someone they had been searching for in connection with the triple homicide and abduction that occurred two months prior at the home in Lake Coeur d'Alene. The man was arrested and taken into custody after law enforcement determined that he was 42-year-old Joseph Duncan. The little girl who was with Duncan was eight-year-old Shasta Grohn, who'd been abducted along with her brother Dylan after Duncan entered their home and murdered their mother, their brother, and their mother's fiancé. Not long after the triple murder and abduction of Dylan and Shasta, Joseph Duncan had skipped bail and fled town after being charged with molesting two boys in Minnesota. Minnesota authorities issued a warrant for Duncan's arrest. News outlets subsequently reported on it and flashed a picture of Duncan during their TV segments. This was not Duncan's first arrest. In fact, he had a very long history of committing serious crimes, some of which had landed Duncan in prison for extended periods of time. Joseph Edward Duncan III was born on February 25th of 1963 in Tacoma, Washington. He and his brother, Bruce Duncan, were military brats, moving about every two years. Joseph was in the Boy Scouts and attended church regularly with his family. According to a 2005 Seattle Times article, Bruce Duncan described Joseph as being a regular teenager. Although, that said, Joseph Duncan was anything but regular. By the age of 15, Joseph Duncan had been charged with the first of many sex crimes after he raped a nine-year-old boy at gunpoint. In 1979, Duncan was sent to a juvenile prison in Tacoma, Washington after he was arrested for driving a stolen vehicle. While in the juvenile prison, at the age of 16, Duncan allegedly admitted to a prison therapist that he had raped 13 boys. Duncan allegedly went into more detail and told the therapist that he had tied up six of the boys during the sexual assaults. He was eventually released from the juvenile prison, and while he was out in 1980, Duncan stole guns from a neighbor and abducted a 14 year old boy. As he had done before, he sexually assaulted the boy at gunpoint. Authorities were able to link Duncan to the crime, and he was sentenced to serve 20 years in prison. Initially, however, Duncan's sentence was suspended, and instead, he was enrolled in a treatment program for sex offenders. After spending two years at the state hospital treatment program, officials determined that the treatment program was not effective for Duncan. At that time, he was sent back to court where his 20-year prison sentence was reinstated. In 1994, after serving 14 years of his 20-year sentence. Duncan was released on parole and went to live at a halfway house in Seattle, Washington. He held down a job at a call center and a publishing company during this time, but that stability would not last. According to a Seattle Times article by Mike Carter and Jonathan Martin, in June of 1996, Duncan's parole officer wrote in his report, It looks like Duncan has some terribly confused boundaries and seems like he is going through a lot right now. Four months later, in October of 1996, Duncan's parole officer reported about him. His personal life appears a little less stable. Duncan eventually stopped seeing a therapist and began going online to look at child pornography. Duncan was in a fast downward spiral during this time, which did not go unnoticed by his parole officer, as confirmed in his written reports. Unfortunately, Three children would be murdered by Duncan during the time, when he was spiraling downward and on parole for the sexual assault he committed against a 14-year-old boy back in 1980. On July 6th of 1996, Ahill White, age 11, and her sister, Carmen Cubius, age 9, walked out of their room at the Crest Motel in Seattle, Washington. The two sisters left their room around 11 o'clock in the evening to buy cigarettes for their older brother. Samiejo and Carmen were never seen alive again. The girls' remains were discovered in an old barn almost two years after they went missing. The sisters went missing just one month after Duncan's parole officer reported that he appeared to be going through a lot. The parole officer's instincts and observations about Duncan were dead on. Nobody was ever charged for the murder of the two girls, although Joseph Duncan would later admit that he killed Sammy A. White and her sister, Carmen Cubius. Joseph Duncan continued to deteriorate rapidly while on parole, and in March of 1997, he resigned from his job selling magazines and left town without telling his parole officer. Duncan got into his girlfriend's white Chrysler New Yorker, and without telling anyone, he left town. One month later, 10-year-old Tony Martinez was abducted from outside of his home in Beaumont, California, and his remains were found two weeks later. Law enforcement wouldn't link Joseph Duncan to Tony's case for eight long years. Sadly, it would take the murder of four other people in order for Joseph Duncan to be tied to Tony Martinez's murder. After Duncan skipped town in his girlfriend's car, and after Tony Martinez was found murdered, law enforcement in Kansas City, Missouri, caught up with Duncan and arrested him for violating parole. He was sent back to prison but was released in July of 2000 for good behavior. After his release from prison, Duncan began living in North Dakota and enrolled in school at North Dakota State University. Four years later, however, Duncan was back to committing crimes against young children. In July of 2004, in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, Duncan molested two young boys. Eight months later, in March of 2005, law enforcement caught up with Duncan and arrested him for molesting the two boys. Before his arrest, and while he was living in Fargo, North Dakota, Duncan befriended a man named Joe Crary. The two men met on the biking trails and often went biking together. After Duncan was arrested in Minnesota for molesting the two boys, he was able to convince his biking friend, Joe Crary, that he was innocent of the crimes. Duncan further told his friend that he did not have enough money to make bail. Crary believed Duncan and wrote him a check for $15,000 so he could get out on bail. Crary was quoted in a 2005 Seattle Times article as saying about his friend, Joseph Duncan, We both enjoyed biking on the bike trails in Fargo, and we became acquaintances In my contact with him, I saw him like many others apparently did. He was polite, soft-spoken, and seemed sincere in turning his life around. I was trying to help him get things straightened out, just like I have tried to help many others over the years. After receiving the check from Crary, Duncan made bail in April of 2005 and subsequently was released from jail. Knowing that Duncan was working two jobs and that he was enrolled in school at the time, Crary did not believe his friend was a flight risk. Crary was wrong, as Joseph Duncan skipped town immediately after making bail. A federal warrant for his arrest was issued. 40 days after skipping out on bail on May 15th of 2005, Duncan entered a home in Lake Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and killed a man, his fiance and her teenage son, and then he kidnapped her two youngest children. 2 months later, Duncan walked into a Denny's restaurant with the young girl he kidnapped and he was arrested without incident. Ladies, if you're planning to have children now or even down the road, Modern Fertility might be of interest to you. With Modern Fertility, you can easily test your fertility hormones at home. Just order the test, do a quick finger prick, and send your test back in the prepaid envelope. In less than two weeks, you'll get a comprehensive report detailing how many eggs you have, your hormone levels, and also any potential red flags that could affect your fertility. Modern fertility's test costs so much less than traditional tests at your doctor's office. And let's face it, who wants to leave the house to do this type of test when you could be at home in your jammies doing the test? With Modern Fertility, you'll also have the option to speak directly with a fertility nurse regarding your test results. My good friend is planning to have children in the near future, so I ordered a Modern Fertility test for her. She's so excited to get a detailed look at her current fertility situation. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering Murderish listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com murderish. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at your doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com murderish. That's modernfertility.com murderish. I recently found a more convenient way to get counseling. BetterHelp Online Counseling offers licensed counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, anger, family conflicts, and LGBTQ matters. The best part is that you can connect with your counselor from the comfort of your own home. And of course, anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp makes counseling so easy and convenient you can do secure phone sessions or chat with your counselor by text. If you want to switch counselors for any reason, you can do so at no charge. BetterHelp is a convenient and affordable option for anyone seeking counseling. Murderish listeners can get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com murderish and entering promo code murderish. That's betterhelp.com slash murderish and use promo code MURDERISH for 10% off your first month. When Duncan was arrested and 8-year-old Shasta was rescued, law enforcement immediately began asking Duncan about Shasta's brother Dylan's whereabouts as he'd been taken from the home along with Shasta. Investigators hoped the young boy might still be alive. Duncan, however, wouldn't give authorities any information about 9-year-old Dylan. Dylan. Shasta gave authorities any information she could recall and said that Duncan had driven her and her brother a long distance, but she couldn't tell them any names of streets. Regarding the night she and her brother were abducted, Shasta told investigators that she and her brother were in their bedrooms when their mother, Brenda, asked them to come into the living room. When they got into the living room, Shasta said there was a strange man, later identified as Joseph Duncan, who had a gun. Shasta said Duncan used zip ties to bind her mother, her teenage brother, and her mother's fiance. She said Duncan brought the three of them to his car and then he came back inside the house. Shasta said she could hear her mother screaming and that her brother, Slade, was able to escape for a short time, but Duncan caught him. Shasta told investigators she didn't know what happened next. Thankfully, Shasta and her brother did not witness their family being murdered by Duncan. Shasta told investigators that Duncan drove her and her brother to numerous places and repeatedly tortured, beat, and sexually assaulted them. She said that Duncan admitted to her that he killed her mother, brother, and her mother's fiancé with a hammer. At one point, Shasta said she was standing on the side of Duncan's car and her brother, Dylan, was standing on the other side. She heard a gunshot ring out, so she ran over to see what happened. Shasta said that's when she saw Dylan laying on the ground. She said Duncan told her that he killed Dylan by accident, that the gun went off by accident as he was reaching for a beer. Duncan told Shasta that the gun, a shotgun, went off by accident and hit Dylan in the stomach. Shasta, however, told investigators that she saw Duncan put the shotgun to Dylan's head. As her brother begged him not to shoot. Shasta said that Duncan pulled the trigger, but the gun did not go off. She said he pulled the trigger again, and this time he shot Dylan in the head, killing him. Shasta said Duncan told her, as he cried, that he only shot her brother to put him out of his misery. Just days after Duncan killed Dylan, Shasta said he had decided to kill her too. She said that Duncan gave her a choice. He could shoot her or strangle her. Shasta said she chose strangulation, so Duncan put a rope around her neck and tightened it. Shasta said she called Duncan by his nickname, Jet, and asked him to stop. This struck a chord with Duncan, and he stopped strangling her. Shockingly, after all that happened, Duncan introduced Shasta to his mother. On July 2nd of 2005, Shasta said Duncan took her into the Denny's restaurant for dinner, and that's when people recognized the pair and alerted the police. Two days after Joseph Duncan was spotted at Denny's and arrested, investigators found human remains near St. Regis, Montana at a campsite in the Lolo National Forest. The remains were processed by the FBI at a lab in Quantico, Virginia and confirmed to be Shasta's nine-year-old brother, Dylan Groan. Dylan's death was determined to be from a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun which was fired at point-blank range to his head, corroborating exactly what Shasta had told investigators. Not long after Duncan was arrested, after seeing a sketch of him, two bloggers believed that the sketch looked very similar to one they had seen before. The two bloggers believed that the sketch looked a lot like the one that was drawn of the suspect in Tony Martinez's murder case. According to a 2005 CBS News article, one of the bloggers, a man named Steve Huff from Georgia, said, I thought the resemblance, the facial structure, was just so strong. It just got my hackles up. The bloggers felt so strongly about the resemblance, they contacted the FBI who then contacted the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The center gave the FBI contact information for authorities who were working on Tony's case. A call was placed to the Riverside County Sheriff's Department on July 14th of 2005, telling them that they might have someone in custody who could be linked to Tony Martinez's abduction and murder. This was a phone call that Riverside County, California authorities Had waited eight long years to receive. Riverside County investigators got on a plane and flew to Idaho to speak with Duncan about Tony's case. As he had done before, Duncan refused to provide any information about Tony Martinez. Ultimately, it didn't matter because investigators were able to match Duncan's thumbprint to the one left behind on the duct tape used to bind Tony. After a nearly decade long investigation, that included over 15,000 tips, investigators had finally found the person responsible for murdering Tony Martinez. Once Duncan was linked to Tony's case, his mother, Diana Martinez, spoke about her son, Mark, now 15 years old, and how he has had to live for years with the pain of his brother's abduction and murder. According to a 2005 LA Times article by Lance Pugmire and Susanna Rosenblatt, Diana said, I can't be a victim my whole life, and neither can they. I'm trying to raise my family the right way and do what's right and work and do what everybody else does. According to a Press Enterprise article by Lisa O'Neill Hill, Michael Fisher, Steve Moore, Phil Pitchford, David Herman, Gregor McGavin, and Jackie Chamberlain, Diana Martinez said about Joseph Duncan, I wish they had caught him sooner. And then this family in Idaho wouldn't have had to suffer. But no matter how they catch him, they can't bring back my son. They can't change what happened. But they can prevent it from happening again. Joseph Duncan's brother, Bruce, was interviewed after his arrest. According to a 2005 Seattle Times article, Bruce said about his brother, He's a human being and he does have feelings. But he has this problem, apparently, that he does not value life. I have no pity for my brother for what he did. I feel sorry for that family. That family, he destroyed it. Bruce went on to say that he believed a death sentence would be appropriate for his brother. While Joseph Duncan was in prison, he told a therapist that as a child, he was sexually abused by a family member. His brother, Bruce, said in an interview that he strongly believed his brother was lying about being abused saying that he never saw anything like that go on in their house and that he was never abused. Bruce also said that his brother told him in a letter that he had been on his way to turn himself in to police at the time he was spotted with Shasta Grown at a Denny's restaurant in Idaho. Bruce seemed to believe that Joseph was telling the truth about that. As he said in the interview about his brother, he was in another state. He could have gone 500 different directions, yet he took Shasta back, referring to the fact that Joseph Duncan took Shasta back to the exact area where he had abducted her, and the two of them ate dinner out in the open. The year following Joseph Duncan's capture, he pleaded guilty to three counts of kidnapping and three counts of murder in an Idaho court for the Grown family and McKinsey murders and abductions. A few months later, in January of 2007, Duncan was charged in California for the murder of Tony Martinez. Rod Pacheco, the Riverside County District Attorney, said that he would be seeking the death penalty for Tony Martinez's abduction and murder. In a strategic move, federal officials had filed a complaint against Duncan on a weekend in order to prosecute him before California could. Just hours after Duncan was charged for Tony's murder in California, a federal grand jury in Idaho indicted Duncan on 10 charges, with three of the charges making him eligible for the death penalty. Given that Duncan had driven a stolen rental vehicle across state lines during his crimes, charges could be filed in federal court. In August of 2008, Duncan, who represented himself during trial, was convicted in Idaho on federal charges for the murder of Dylan and Shasta's mother brother and their mother's fiance. He was sentenced to death for those convictions. During his federal trial, the prosecution said that the victims lived in a house that was often visited by travelers passing through town and in need of directions. The prosecution told the jury that as Duncan traveled through town, he noticed Dylan and Shasta outside of their home in their bathing suits. That's when he decided to begin watching the family to see what their patterns were. He watched them for days and would follow them each time they left the house. When the time was right, Duncan entered the home, murdered three of the family members and eventually Dylan, sparing only eight-year-old Shasta, whom he came very close to killing. Before Joseph Duncan murdered Dylan, he made videos of himself torturing and abusing the young boy. The Idaho jury was subjected to viewing this video footage during trial. What was shown in the videos was graphic and extremely disturbing. I'm not going to elaborate further. After the trial concluded, the U.S. District Court offered counseling to the jurors due to the highly disturbing nature of the video footage. The videos, which were filmed in the home where Dylan and Shasta lived with their family, were viewed not just by the jury, but also by all of the spectators who were in the gallery. According to a 2008 Daily Herald article by Rebecca Boone, Dylan and Shasta Grohn's father, Stephen Grohn, tried unsuccessfully to get the courtroom closed to only essential court personnel, jurors, and the media, but the judge denied his request. Grohn was extremely upset over the judge's denial of his request and understandably, his emotions ran very high knowing that people were going to watch what his young son had been subjected to. After the judge denied his request, Grone tried to get spectators to leave the courtroom out of respect for his son, and when they wouldn't leave, he made obscene gestures at them and threatened to have them arrested for viewing child pornography. Grone refused to stay in the courtroom while videos of his son's torture and abuse were shown. Afterward, he came back into the courtroom and asked some of the spectators if they enjoyed watching the videos of his son. Joseph Duncan, who had made the awful videos, covered his face as they were shown in court. His defense attorneys looked the other way. In addition to multiple death sentences, Duncan also received concurrent terms of life in prison for kidnapping and aggravated sexual abuse of a minor. After Duncan was convicted and sentenced for the federal charges relating to the crimes in Idaho, his attorneys wanted to appeal his sentence for the kidnapping and murder of Dylan Groan. Duncan, however, said he did not wish to appeal his sentence. A lengthy battle ensued to determine whether Joseph Duncan was of sound mind to make the decision not to appeal. At some point during the long appeals process, Duncan changed his tune and decided, that he did want to appeal. Finally, in March of 2019, 11 long years after he was convicted for the Idaho crimes, the court rejected all of Duncan's claims. That may not be the end of the road, as Duncan, by law, could appeal the 2019 decision. After Duncan's federal and state trials concluded in Idaho, he was extradited to California in 2009 to stand trial for the abduction and murder of Tony Martinez. Although Duncan had already received numerous death sentences for his crimes in Idaho, Riverside District Attorney Rod Pacheco vowed to seek justice for Tony Martinez and his family. In 2010, Duncan expressed an interest in representing himself at trial, as he had done in Idaho. At some point, however, he changed his mind and requested counsel at which time he was assigned public defender Gail O'Rein. The following year, Duncan, who was then being represented by defense attorney Scott O'Meara, accepted a plea deal and pleaded guilty to kidnapping, raping, and murdering 10-year-old Tony Martinez. As part of the plea deal, Duncan was spared from the death penalty and received a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Given that Duncan would have been in his 70s by the time California executed him, and the fact that he had already received multiple death sentences for other crimes, all involved in the California case believed that negotiating a plea deal was the right thing to do. As part of the plea deal, Duncan had to document in writing what he had done to Tony. In his written statement, Duncan said he raped Tony And after binding him with duct tape, he beat him over the head with a rock, killing him. As part of the agreement, Duncan would not be allowed to appeal his conviction or sentence for murdering Tony Martinez. According to a 2011 Patch article by Jessica E. Davis, Tony's mother, Diana, said after the plea agreement, of which she was in favor, because it had just been so long, we just didn't want to wait. I've waited 14 years just to fall apart. Now we can mourn Tony's death the way we should have in the beginning. When we buried him, we didn't know who did it. On April 5th of 2011, Joseph Duncan received two life sentences for his unspeakable crimes against Tony Martinez. As the judge read his sentence aloud, Duncan showed no emotion. According to a 2011 KABC ABC7 article, Deputy District Attorney Otis Sterling said, As a prosecutor, this is one of the scariest cases I've ever dealt with. It's the type of case that I go home and I have nightmares about it. Anthony's father, Ernesto Martinez, said after the sentence was handed down, As a father, I would love nothing more than to carry out Joseph Duncan's execution with my own two hands. Superior District Court Judge David Downing said, I can say in my 31 years of being involved in the criminal justice system, I have never met a more evil person than Joseph Duncan. April 4th of 2017 marked 20 years after Tony Martinez was abducted. On that day in 2017, a ceremony in Tony's honor was held in the town of Beaumont. The terrifying incident still haunts Tony's brother, Mark, who was Duncan's intended victim. According to a 2017 Patch article by Renee Shivani, Mark said, I still remember seeing that man drive away with my brother, but I also remember Lieutenant John Acosta and Lieutenant Mitch White, the care and dedication they had for my family. Tony's family, who now live in Kansas, say they will always remember the support and kindness the citizens of Beaumont show them. In the same article, Tony's mother, Diana, was quoted as saying, I made it to the point where we knew the man who killed you was prosecuted, that I was very proud and I do believe that Tony would have been very proud of me as well. I've been with him so many times in my dreams again, as if he was just here and I don't wake up angry anymore when I have those kinds of dreams. I wake up feeling blessed. For the dedication lieutenants John Acosta and Mitch White showed to Tony's case, a memorial fountain and plaque were presented at the Beaumont Police Department in honor of Tony and them. Acosta died from cancer in 2008, just before Joseph Duncan pleaded guilty for his crimes against Tony. Lieutenant White, who put off his scheduled retirement in order to see Tony's case all the way through, also died from cancer in 2013. Both Acosta and White had received Lifetime Achievement Awards during their time with the Beaumont Police Department. During the ceremony, White's brother, Craig, spoke about his brother's passion for Tony's case. According to a 2017 Press Enterprise article by Ali Tadayan and Gail Wesson, Craig said just two days before his brother died, Craig asked him, What's the biggest thing you can remember? Craig said his brother responded very clearly, saying, Having the Martinez case solved before I retire. Tony Martinez's case clearly had an enormous impact on so many people. I remember it vividly. At the time that Tony was abducted and murdered, I lived in Redlands, which is about a 15-minute drive west of Beaumont. I remember feeling such dread over the manner in which Tony's body was discarded by a person who was at that time unknown. The United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana's death row is home to most of the 62 federal prisoners who've been sentenced to death. Today, this is where 57-year-old Joseph Duncan resides. Only three inmates have been executed there since the death penalty was reinstated in 1933. One of the three inmates who were executed at the penitentiary in Terre Haute was Timothy McVeigh, better known as the Oklahoma City Bomber. McVeigh was put to death in 2001. Joseph Duncan is serving three death sentences and 11 consecutive sentences of life without parole for his horrendous crimes. While closure is likely an unattainable pursuit, the fact that Duncan will die behind bars where he can never hurt another child hopefully provide some solace to his surviving victims and family members of those he victimized. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. If you feel like it, you can also leave the show a review in your favorite podcast app. If you'd like more info about the show or me, head over to Murderish.com. On the website, you can also sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's murderish.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched by Steve Field and written by me. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources including but not limited to news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books, magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that oftentimes someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather information I draw from to help tell these stories. Thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode can be found at Murderish.com. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.